Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more content and upcoming events, visit anchorchurchcsra.com. All right, we're continuing in chapter two this morning in this story in the book of Esther. Just to recap last week in chapter one, we have King Ahasuerus, a prideful jerk of a king that sought to humiliate his wife. He threw this huge party for the kingdom, really is like a battle planning meeting, but threw a 180 day long party for everybody so he could flaunt his wealth and the palace and all of that. And then he sought his wife, Queen, es- I'm sorry, Queen Vashti, uh, and bring her out in front of a bunch of drunken dudes and to, and to say, hey, look at my trophy wife. And she said, no. She said, I will not do that. And so, embarrassment to minimize the consequences, his wise men advised him to completely banish her, demote her, depose her from the kingdom, from being queen. And so they did it. They pulled the trigger. They made a royal decree, which you cannot revoke a royal decree once it has been said. There were two royal decrees in chapter one. The first one was simply, you can drink as much as you want. Get drunk. That was the royal decree in in verse eight of chapter one. And then at the end, Vashti has been removed and taken out of the kingdom. And so, We're in chapter two this week, and this is going to be an amazing, amazing chapter because because we're going to be introduced to Esther, the main character of the book. And so this has all been a setup at this point. Last week, the big idea was that even in the midst of brokenness, even in the midst of this sinful, carnal wreckage caused by Hazarus, even in the midst of a pagan empire, God uses whomever he wants and whatever he wants for his glory. He can make something beautiful out of brokenness. And really that theme carries into this week. It's not a different lesson at all. It's just manifested differently in this chapter. And so open with me to Esther 2. Esther 2. And there was three scenes last week. There's three scenes this week as well. And so as we open to Esther 2, we're going to go ahead and go to scene one. Write this down if you're taking notes. Scene, scene one today is a hazardous search for a new queen. And let's just read verses one through seven together. Sometime later, now we know this to be four years because of what Esther says, what history tells us. So four years later, so this is in the seventh year of his reign, King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down because Ahasuerus, one of his downfalls, we said pride, we said insecurity, but also, he was, he was a hothead, especially when he was wasted, which led to this stupid decision that he made. And so, he's cooled down. He's, he, he, he's had four years to think it over. Now, in these four years, it's important to note that his hatred for Greece, his, remember last week how we talked about his dad had been soundly defeated, by Greece, his dad Darius, embarrassing defeat, and he sought to avenge his father's embarrassment. Well, he tried to go do that during this four-year period, and you know what happened? Defeat. Ahasuerus was defeated. He, too, was humiliated. Greece got the best of them, and eventually, we know throughout history, that's exactly what would happen. Greece would end up taking over, especially when Alexander 
uh, came around, Alexander the Great. And so, uh, but this was way before that, and he is defeated. So just get in Ahasuerus' head for a moment. Because I know sometimes we, we hear Bible stories, and sometimes we really identify with the hero, but we don't identify with the villain at all. But we've watched TV shows before, um, maybe like a series, um, maybe something like Breaking Bad, where, you know, I mean, just took over the nation. I mean, everybody's watching Breaking Bad, and it's like, there's this guy, like, he's, like he's, he's doing something wrong. Like, he's kind of, like, you might even argue, like, he's the villain, but he's the protagonist as well, you know, and there's this tension. Um, and there's all sorts of shows, um, you know, Hollywood writers started figuring out that people like to watch that kind of thing, because it kind of flips the story on its head. And so I'm not asking you to fall in love with the Hazarus. I mean, it, he's, he's a very unlikable character and for good reason. Uh, but I am asking all of us to be honest for a second and just go, well, you know what? Man, I've made some really dumb decisions too. And I've had some long standing consequences. Hopefully not anything like what he did in chapter one. But when we're honest, we go, hey, before a holy God who's perfect, I'm very imperfect. I'm not like God in that way. I screw some things up sometimes. Sometimes I don't get it right, and I have to feel what Ahasuerus was feeling in, cha- in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, which is what? Regret. He's feeling regret. He's feeling shameful. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody ever done something you regret? Man, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't have done it. And so that's where he is. He's been defeated in battle. He's been defeated, and I mean, he gave up his marriage, essentially, and he's embarrassed, he's shameful, and honestly, if he could go back and do it again, he would have never deposed Vashti. But he did, and he's got to live with it. And so he remembers Vashti, thinking about her, reminiscing, because what Ahasuerus had, he had women. He had hundreds of them. He could just snap his fingers, literally rattle off anybody that he wanted, really anybody, whether they were concubine or not. He could just snap his fingers and have, have that girl in his bedchamber at a moment's notice. This is the kind of kingdom that was set up. He had, he had women, but he didn't have a wife. He had momentary pleasure, but he did not have that lifelong commitment, that deep love, that person that when you come home and you feel defeated and you feel shameful, that person will lift you up. That's what he was missing, and he knew that. So verse two, the king's personal attendants, they see that he's depressed, he's down in the dumps, he's faced to deal with his choices, and they say, hey, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Hey, we know what the king likes. He likes women, but he's got women, but he, he needs beautiful young virgins, and we're gonna do a search. We're gonna let the king appoint commissioners, verse three, in each province, there's 127 of them, so just get this magnitude in your mind. Remember from India to Kush, this huge empire, 127 provinces. We're gonna let each of those provinces just churn out young virgin ladies and we can gather them all together at, at the harem in Susa. And we're gonna essentially have a Miss Persia contest. Only way more scandalous and sketch, okay? This is not like our beauty pageants in the US at all. Thank goodness. Um, this, this was... Um, this was essentially like mixing a, uh, you know, like a Miss Persia with like an episode of The Bachelor that's X-rated. Okay, this is, this is the kind of vibe that we're talking about here. And so 
The idea was to put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch. Now, there's a reason why he wanted eunuchs running the harem, for obvious reasons. We won't unpack all of that, but put two and two together. And so, uh, keeper of the women to give them the required beauty treatments. Because here's what would happen. They would be given just the utmost, I mean, just to infinity and beyond beauty treatments so that they could be worthy enough to enter into the king's chamber and be with the king. I mean, you see how in this culture, I know some of it is just making our stomachs turn and I'm sorry, but it gets worse um, this morning as we go along. But uh, women in this culture, essentially to a hazardous and to many others uh, were pretty much sex objects. And I hate, to, I hate to tell you that, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna sugarcoat the story this morning. We're gonna, we're gonna realize the depths of the brokenness. And really, that's really not um, news to any of us here because even in our uh, American context that we live in, um, I wish I could say that things were different. But our culture has a propensity towards that as well. Just look at advertising. Just look at social media. Just look at what's marketed, especially towards our young people, especially towards young ladies and what you need to look like and what you need to be. And this is, no, no, you have to, I mean, just look at the way fashion goes. I've, I've, I've talked to so many, um, I've talked to so many, uh, you know, just people in passing and just, just commenting like, man, I have, man, I have, uh, trouble even even finding clothes now nowadays, you know, because I mean, it's just there's just this agenda push that hey, you need to be this, you need to look like this, you need to show this to have any sort of worth or value, and it was the same. And that so really, it's as old as history. This idea, and so they want to take all that and they want to get a Hazarus, a queen, and so scene one, like I said, is the search or the pursuit of a queen. So let's look at verse four then. Then the young woman who pleases the king, this doesn't just mean that he likes her, he's going to take each of these women into his bedchamber and sleep with them. And the one that he likes the best, he will make queen instead of Ashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. And so that's what we have in the first few verses together. A Miss Persia contest, only much worse. And so uh, then right after that in verse five, though, we have this interjection. And we have this alarming verse that would have got the attention of every reader. We, we kind of blow past it, but we really put on our Jewish eyes for a moment. We see in verse five, in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man. Whoa, where? In, in the fortress of Susa. Well, that's an odd place for a Jewish man to be because remember we said that the Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. They were in exile for a while to the Babylonians. The Persians took over. They're now in Persia, but a lot of them had made a life in Babylon and now Persia, and they didn't want to go back because things were kind of comfortable. And this is where we pick up with a Jewish man. We're introduced to a main character in our story named Mordecai. Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So this kind of takes you back through the lineage, and, and I wish we had time to kind of unpack who each of these guys were, but just know that he came from a significant lineage in the Jewish family, in the, in the Israelite family. Kish had been taken to exile from Jerusalem with other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. It's recounting when Israel fell, when the tribe of Judah fell, and were taken into Babylonian exile. Now, Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which her Persian name would have been 
Esther. Now her name in Hebrew means myrtle. And myrtle was a symbol of peace, of thanksgiving. Her name in Persia would have meant something more like star. And Esther uh, really is like a transliteration of one of their goddesses in the Persian uh, empire. And so, and that was very common, by the way, the Jews that were taken in exile, they would, they would be renamed after false gods. And that happened all the time. Just look at the book of Daniel. I mean, it happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You probably have heard that story in Daniel 3. And we see here that Mordecai had no, I'm sorry, Esther had no father or mother. She was an orphan. And so what does cousin Mordecai do? Well, he adopts her. And we learn something about Esther. Look in the verse here. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. And so we're, we're finding out from, from the get-go important details that she, she was made. I mean, yes, there is an inner beauty and there was certainly an inner beauty about Esther as well, but we're really finding out about an outer beauty that was remarkable. And we're going to see how God is going to leverage that in this story in this very messy story. So Mordecai adopts her, really becomes her dad, not just a father figure, but actually her legal guardian and really her father. And so they had a close relationship. He would have taught her like a father and they would have been very, very, very close. Now, what was happening during this search was quite disturbing. They would knock on the door, and the door would open and they would say, hey, your daughter's coming with us. And there would be nothing that they could do about it. So essentially, you've got teenage virgins being abducted from their homes, parents hiding their kids, you know, weeping uncontrollably. I mean, you, you, you can imagine how that feels, especially those of you that are parents. But even if you're not, you, you can imagine how heart-wrenching that would be to have your, your, your young daughter taken from the home and likely to only be used as a sex object for one night, for a one night stand, and then to be sent to a concubine area of the palace called the harem, and they would live there for the rest of their life to be a perpetual widow. Again, wickedness, brokenness. This was an evil thing that was going on, but God is still at work. And I know, man, I, I get the same feeling that you do when we read the news. And we read the stories. We see injustice. We see racism. We see murder. We see, we see just gross behavior and just perversion and corruption. And we just go, man, how can God be in that? You know, I'm just really struggling with how he's at work. But God is always at work in you, in me, and in our world. God has not left this situation alone. And so... They're on the search. They're taking the girls. And we get to scene two. We get to scene two here. The second scene is one of supernatural favor. We're going to talk about Esther's supernatural favor because we see what God does when God, God uses people in remarkable ways. And what he does is he, he bestows upon certain people a supernatural amount of favor. Things are just working out. Things are working out that, I mean, have you ever been there in your life? I mean, I guarantee you that every one of us in the room could give an account of a moment of supernatural favor where you were like, I did not do anything to make this happen. I cannot take credit for it. God did it. 
And if you have trouble thinking about that, that's, that's, that's okay. Maybe there's something that you just haven't realized yet. You'll, you'll think back on your life and realize it many years later. That's how I find my life works, where I don't realize it in the moment. I, I, I miss what God's doing right here, but then three years later I go, oh man, I didn't even see that he was doing that. We see how the dominoes fall. And so Esther has a supernatural favor. See, when the king's command, let's look at verse eight together. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, everybody knows about it. The women were gathered at the fortress of Susa. Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, the keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and, gave, and, and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process, that's the key word there, of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. And so there was this process, again, the beautification treatments for each of these ladies would have lasted a year. They would have put them through a year of makeup, of diet, of different things. They wanted, Ahasuerus had a very specific menu. Again, this is objectification at its finest, okay? Um, this is a broken, messed up situation. But he speeds her along. We see the favor right here. He, she, she gained favor with who first? Haggai, the keeper of the women. And this was so that she could be accelerated through that process. See, we're going to see Esther takes a slightly different course than other people, and she can't take credit for it. She did not have a choice of whether or not she was going to be involved in this process. But we'll see later on she had some other choices, and she'll make the right choice. And she's an inspiration and a great example for us. But he had assigned seven handpicked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her. So this wasn't normal. She gets extra people attending her. She gets extra attention. She's being fast forwarded through this process. God is taking care of her. Because for Esther, we need to understand this this morning. This was very dangerous for her. Very dangerous for her. There were people in the palace at the time. Vashti's out. Esther's coming up and, and not queen yet, but in this process. And there were many people who were traditionalists. And if they were to find out that Esther was a Jew, that would not have been good for her. There's evidence that there's plenty of anti-Semitism going on in the palace. Although it was a diverse culture, there was still this attitude of, of, um, of just being put off by anyone that would be Jewish, and especially for those loyal to Vashti. And so we see she's gaining favor. Now, favor, again, is a, another word for grace that we have in the Bible. There's this grace. We're not talking about salvation grace. We're talking about a grace. Again, this is just God's work in our life that we did not ask for. Have you ever, um, have you ever prayed something before and it was answered? Now, have you ever not prayed something and then it was answered for you, right? It's like, man, I didn't even go looking for that and God just gave it to me. That's, that's what God's favor looks like. But we're talking about a supernatural level of favor because God's got a plan. Now, Esther in verse 10, this is kind of an interesting verse. It's gonna make us scratch our heads a little bit, ready? Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had asked her not to. He had, in fact, he ordered her not to make them known. Now, what we do with Bible characters sometimes is we can, I don't know, we can kind of dehumanize them. Should, should Esther have concealed her faith? Should she 
have been compliant. See, we have Daniel in the book of Daniel. Daniel refuses to eat the diet of the pagans. He refused. He says, man, I don't, I don't need any of that stuff. They told Daniel not to pray. Guess what Daniel did? He prayed anyway. They threw him in a pit. What does Esther do? She plays the game. And so we're kind of forced, we're kind of in the middle here. Now, I'm not dogging Esther, all right, before you, before you start getting worked up here. What I'm saying is that this isn't as clean as we would like it, that there's some real tension in the story. And that's how, that's how good stories work, right? Those are the kind of movies we like to watch where there's this very complicated texture going on here. Friends, let me, let me encourage you with this. There's a time and place to not flaunt our faith. There is an advantageous way to not hide who we are in Christ because Jesus himself said, you're not to put your light under a basket and hide it. No, you're to let your light shine before men. They'll see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. So we're, we're told to let our light shine. But there may be a scenario, let's say you're, you're gonna be a missionary in Pakistan, okay? And you get there on day one and you're, you're off the plane and you're exiting the terminal, Okay, and before you even leave the airport, you just set up a, a big banner stand that says, you know, Jesus loves you and I'm a Christian, and you start open air preaching. What's, what's going to happen to you? Are you going to win anyone to the Lord? No, you're going to be hauled off to prison and possibly killed. So there's a time, there's a way. Wisdom, this is, this is the interesting part about wisdom. Wisdom, and actually, the, actually man, God just kind of hit me with this. You know, wisdom is very nuanced sometimes. Wisdom requires a very specific application. And here's just what I want us to remember this morning. There's a time and place to be vocal about your faith. It's not a never thing. It's not a, hey, be quiet. Hey, be a, be a 007 Christian, a secret agent Christian. They'll just figure it out. You'll just play spiritual charades at work and they'll just figure out you're a Christian. No, like, there's, like just pray for opportunities to be able to talk about that. Um, I'll give you an example from my life, uh, just, just a very real practical example. Um, when I gig with music out in the community, I play at places where there aren't a lot of Christians around in these environments. And, um, you know, the first thing, I don't ever hide the fact that I'm a pastor. I don't ever hide the fact that I'm a Christian. If it comes up, we talk about it. But it's not the first thing I say. I don't walk over there and go, hey, I'm Brandon. I'm a pastor. It's nice to meet you because for many people, you know what happens at that point? The wall goes up. Oh, this guy's going to judge me. Oh, oh this guy's going to be judgmental, especially a Baptist pastor. That can be a little, that can be a little tricky, especially when I lived in Atlanta, because um, Baptist is synonymous with judgmental in that uh, culture and context. So we're in this scene too, and we're seeing Esther surge forward with supernatural favors. Mordecai says, hey, hey, keep it low. And there will be a time and place, by the way, where she steps up and she is bold in her faith, but it's not the time. There's a time for everything. Verse 12, during the year before, I told you earlier, they, they had harem regulations. They have these beauty treatments. We're gonna continue on to verse 13. The young woman would go into the king. They're just really unpacking the process here. Taken from the harem to the palace, she would go in the evening, and again, it would be a one-night stand. And she would likely, just probability, would never even see the king again unless he desired her. But let's look at verse 15. Let's look at verse 15. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. Again, they're emphasizing her Jewish heritage. They're, they're reminding you of this tension. 
When her turn came to go into the king, all right, here we go, we're building suspense. What does she do? She didn't ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Because what most women would have done would have been just try to uh, cake on as much makeup as possible, to have all the jewelry, to try to impress the king as much. I mean, this was a contest that they were forced into, but they would have, you know, the end result of the contest, like the best case scenario is you become queen and you're not a perpetual widow, and you're not banished to the harem, and you do get to see your family. That was the best case scenario. So they were doing whatever they could, but Esther refused to play that game. She listened to the one she had favor with. She trusted this process that God had her in. Again, this is a messy process. This is not, this is not, planned. This is not God's best this is not God's ideal. You know, heaven is God's best. The Garden of Eden before sin is God, you know, is what God created and it was good. This is broken and messed up, but God is still at work and he's still guiding her. And she was a girl of faith and Mordecai was a man of faith. And so they proceed forward when her turn came. She didn't ask for anything extra. And she gained favor in the eyes of who? Everyone. Everyone that saw her. She had this supernatural favor. God had his hand on Esther. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, verse 16, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than any of the other virgins. And what does he do? He places the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is remarkable that a Jewish nobody in a Persian capital of Susa would, would become queen. Now again, no one knew she was Jewish, but this is, this is mind-blowing. I mean, this is, again, trying to put on our Jewish eyes as we're reading the Old Testament. Like, this is, what? Man, this is, this is crazy. This is crazy. So what does Ahasuerus do in true Ahasuerus style? He throws a party. There's a party for Esther, and he does something pretty nice. He frees his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts, and, you know, he's a very, you know, now it's, now it's his turn to be generous and all that, and all that sort of thing. So, What's scene three? Scene three is where it's going to really get interesting. Scene three is where Mordecai, remember this is Esther's dad or adoptive cousin, uncle. Mordecai saves the king. He saves the king. B.B. Warfield has a great quote. I just figured would, would be a great launching point into this section. And here's what B.B. Warfield says. A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. We're about to talk about the providence of God. You can write that down this morning. The providence of God. This is a theological truth that simply means, just put it in its simplest form, God provides. God provides providence. He provides everything necessary for his plan to be carried forward. And really, if we zoom out of providence for a second, we see God's sovereignty. God is over everything. But there's this tension with God's sovereignty. There's God's sovereignty. God is in charge of all. It's ultimately up to him. And then we have over here the human responsibility. He doesn't, we're not puppets on a string. He gives us choices. We make those choices. We can choose to be involved in God's plan and do what he says, or we can choose to reject his plan and, and, and rebel against him. And in fact, all of us as humankind at some point make that choice to say, hey God, I know you said that, but I'm gonna do this other thing. And that's called sin. And so we have this tension between sovereignty, responsibility, all wrapped up in the providence of God. And what we see 
related to the providence of God uh, is really highlighted in 1 Timothy 6. Just look at this verse. Uh, this is kind of like a cross-reference where we bring in something from the New Testament that kind of speaks to this. Paul's writing to Timothy, who was a men- you know, Paul, Paul was a mentor to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. And he says, I charge you, Timothy, to keep this command, all the things that he had told him throughout the whole letter, essentially, you probably heard, fight, fight the good fight. You know, keep up, keep up the good work. Keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God, here we go, will bring about in his own time. This is what we mean by the providence of God. God works all things out in his time. Now, is God's time quicker or slower than what we want? Much slower. There's one, one quote I read this week that God's, God's mill of providence, the mill, grinds slowly but surely. Slowly, more slow. It drives us crazy, especially drives me crazy because I'm a very fast-paced guy. I like things, that, I'm, a, I'm a get-it-done guy. I like to mow through the task and keep things moving. I don't, I don't like to take my time with much of anything. Uh, but God isn't bound by our time schedule, isn't bound by our calendar year isn't bound by anything. In fact, the Bible even says in true poetic and hyperbolic form to make this illustration, one day to the Lord, like a thousand years. You know, God doesn't, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so we come to God and what B.B. Warfield was really saying, he's just like the foundation of a faith that is growing, friends, is a trust in God's providence. It's like, hey, I may not like where I'm at right now. I mean, think about Esther and her story. I may not, like, this is, this is kind of gross. This is a gross process. This is just not a good situation. I don't like this, but God's in this, and I trust him. It's a trust in his timing, his providence, his way. And again, as we've, we're gonna harp on this entire series, God, even when he's silent, he's taking care of you. Even when he seems non-existent, he's very present. And so, We see this. Scene three, what happens? Well, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Remember, Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity because Mordecai told her not to. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she had always done when he had raised her. We learned something very important about Esther. She was obedient. She was obedient. She was, she was a girl of faith, so she sought to be obedient to God, but she also sought to be obedient. She also sought to honor her father. And so we see a few things about Esther right, right out from the gate. She's humble. She's filled with faith. She's obedient. Those are three applicable things that we can take with us this week. You know, God, how can, how can I be more humble? This, the, the, the essence of humility is not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Now, I know some of us in the room might take that and we might downgrade ourselves several notches and we think less of ourselves than we ought to. You know, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. So we do need to um, acknowledge God's work in our life and how God has strengthened you and positioned you and all of that. It's not thinking less of yourself. Uh, It's been said before, humility is thinking of yourself less often. And so that's what we want to do. And, 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 And Esther was, again, humble and just obedient. But during those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate because remember, he had a position in the Persian system there, which would, again, really, really unusual for a Jewish man to have that sort of influence. 
and what's really cool about history is there's actually documentation of, uh, you know, that, that, that corroborates that this is, that this is supported by history. So this isn't just part of this, of this story, and it's, you know, question, well, we don't really know if Mordecai was a real guy or not. No, like, I mean, we have, like, artifacts that have, like, his name on it, and he was a Jewish man, and he was an official, and, I mean, it's just amazing how archaeology supports Scripture. But during those days, he's sitting at the king's gate, and this is what we call a just-so-happened kind of event. You ever have one of those happen in your life? Like, I just, I just so happened to hear this. I just so happened to be there. I just so happened to be driving along, and this person just happened to be there. I mean, we, we call it coincidence, but it's God's providence. We call it happenstance. But nothing's, nothing's happenstance with God. It's all intentional. And so he just so happened to be sitting at the king's gate. Big thing in Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated, likely um, because they were loyal. They were loyal to Vashti, and they would have still been stewing about this for years. And they decided it's finally time to take care of this Ahasuerus guy. So, verse twenty-two: When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and then she tells the king, "Hey, Mordecai just told me." that this is going on, like that Mordecai guy that you have working at the gate, there's an assassination plot, assassination plot. In verse 23, when the report was investigated and verified, both of those eunuchs, both of those men were hanged on the gallows, and this event was recorded in the historical record of the king's presence. Now again, by itself, this seems like an isolated, like, hey, thanks, thanks Mordecai, appreciate it. But to be honest with you, the king's not really aware of it at this point. I mean, it was told to him, but he had a lot of things going on, and we'll find out later in the story he actually remembers it on, on, on another occasion because people would have just written it down in the book and it would have been done. He would have been moved on to the next thing. We're going to end like this. Things that seem insignificant in your life, just like this account right here. Yes, the king was saved, yay, but it's going to seem insignificant in the grand scheme of the story. And there are going to be moments in your life that are going to seem insignificant. But it's been said once before, actually many times before, popular quote, that big doors swing on small hinges, right? That these, that these tiny dominoes in your heart and in your life and in your story, in your story and in my story, these things that seem like they don't really matter, God is using those things. And God is going to use this incident to make all the difference in the world, to save his people. Because we're going to see next week how God's covenant with his people is going to be completely threatened and the Jewish people as a whole are going to be under threat of being exterminated. And we're going to see how God continues to prove, just like we sang before today, just like we'll sing in the response, that God is a saving God. He's not just a God that says, hey, submit to my rules, do what I say or else. He's a God that knows our brokenness. He knows our sin. He knows our shame. And he meets us right where we're at. And he turns ashes into beauty. He makes something beautiful out of a mess. And we'll continue to see it as we go on here. I want to encourage you today, whatever's going on in your life, that God is right in the middle of it. Even if you're having trouble hearing from right now. Even if you're finding it hard to pray right now. God is with you. Some of you are in a fresh season right now. You're starting something new. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a new season of your spiritual walk. Maybe, maybe um, you know, maybe uh, you know, I've talked to lots and lots and lots and lots of people who, you know, COVID kind of disrupted 
your norm. And then now it's what we're calling post-COVID and it's, it's after that. And you're like, man, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find my groove, but I, I just, I'm just not there yet. Hey, we want to journey with you in that. We want to help you. We want to help you in that. The number one way to find your new groove, essentially, is to be tight with God, is to have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, and I'm not talking about a relationship with the church where we, where we just come to church. Coming to church is great. We, we gather here on Sundays. We worship. We hear from God's word. But we want to be in daily relationship with Jesus. We want to open our Bibles and read them and apply them to our life because God's microphone to your soul, what he wants to say to you daily is found in the Bible. And he can help you at your job, uh, glorify him to live out a purpose. Maybe there's someone here this morning, like you're, you're struggling with purpose right now. You're like, man, what does God have me do? Maybe you find yourself in a job that you hate. Or maybe you just change jobs and you're still not sure about it. Or maybe it's family related. Maybe it's something else. But just know that no matter what you're going through, lean in in this series to a God who, although he seems silent, although he seems far away, he is right smack in the middle of everything. And he is full of intention and his providence will prove to be what's best. So let's pray together. Jesus, we love you so much. We lift you up this morning. We come before you and just acknowledge that, that, that you know what's best, that you know what's best and that you, you are just so perfect at no matter who it is, no matter what period of history it is, no matter what's going on, you just prove yourself to be faithful. You prove yourself to be a loving God and a capable God. Jesus, you proved, you proved this when you went to the cross on our behalf. Because what some people in that time thought was you being defeated, in fact, death was being defeated. Sin was being defeated. And you defeated sin and death on our behalf. And we thank you for that. I pray for every person in here, Lord, that every person would, would, would call upon your name and that would know of your salvation and that your blood would cover their sins and that they could, be, they could find favor with you, Lord, an unmerited favor called your grace. It is by grace that we are saved through faith, and that we would all put our faith in you, a faith that believes in your providence, a faith that believes that your best is right in the middle of the world's worst. Jesus, help us have that faith. Help us see you, hear from you, even when it's hard. Help us to see the unseen God. Help us to see your work behind the scenes and continue to pursue you each day, each week. Help us to continue to grow in faith. We lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit anchorchurchcsra.com or follow us on social media at anchorchurchcsra.com.